Keep your plan if you are satisfied with it. Donald Trump is not going to be president of the United States. Take it to the bank. Together, we will make America great again. We shall never surrender. It's what you've been waiting for all day. Buck Sexton with America Now. Join the conversation. Call Buck toll-free at 844-900-BUCK. That's 844-900-2825. Sharp mind, strong voice. Buck Sexton. Team Buck, welcome to the Freedom Hut. Great to have you here with me. Much appreciate your time. Uh, CNN getting a taste of its own medicine the last 24 hours. Ah, yes. I think back to my time at CNN. Walking around those hallways after uh, a news hit when I thought to myself, does anyone realize how dishonest that whole segment just was? What an ambush that was. How the anchor refused to let me speak. Or how the anchor, perhaps even more annoyingly, said he would let me respond and then we went to commercial break and then refused to let me respond when we came back. Or perhaps a producer would pull me into an office after a segment and say, you were a little too rough on so-and-so there and I would have to respond, Well, so-and-so kept interrupting me, so how am I rough on that person? But I digress, my friend. CNN getting getting some some tough stuff here uh, and finally seeing what it's like, I suppose. Temporarily, of course. Massive organization, makes hundreds of millions of dollars a year, uh, and and has some very good people who work for it. And so, you know, keep that in mind as we talk about the the broad strokes. Uh, But... Having a rough, having a rough time of it right now. CNN under siege. Uh, we could, we could say that's what's going on. Uh, you'll notice that earlier on, I said to you a few days ago, I said to you, well, this whole uh, movement within some conservatives, and unfortunately, they tend to coincide with some of the uh, never Trump conservatives that I know, who were very quick to say, see, CNN is doing the right thing here, reestablishing its journalistic credibility. I was like, no, that's not really what's happening here. Uh, This was probably actionable, and uh, they couldn't defend it, and it was on Russia stuff, and they know it looks really bad, and that's why they fired people. If it were a good-faith error, you you don't fire journalists for a good-faith error. This was something else. This was, I saw it, I could smell it right away. This was... A much bigger problem than just a story that was incorrect. This, as I told you, was a problem for CNN because it let everybody know. It let let the cat out of the bag. It let everybody know what was really go- what's really going on over there. In a way that you'd have to be willfully dishonest. You'd you'd have to be completely blind to the reality of their reporting to come away with any conclusion other than, okay, so that they are a pack. They're a politi- it's not CNN, it's a pack, a political action committee uh, intended to bring about a certain uh, propaganda effect in the public, to convince the public of certain things. And now we find out that uh, those who are like, yeah, Buck, I think you're right, we were right, uh, because it turns out that there, there's a report now that CNN was facing a $100 million libel suit. Remember, slander is spoken, libel is written. Sla- uh, libel, I was about to say slander suit. Libel suit. And it's at a time when CNN uh, is possibly, because its parent company's Time Warner, which might be purchased by AT&T, there's merger stuff going on. There's big, there's big things happening at the regulatory level. And a giant, fat libel lawsuit 
would mess up the works there. Big money involved here. So that's a reason for it. And as I said, everything else also that I said about it stands. And none of this is a way of saying that, oh, CNN just cares so much about its credibility. No, no, no. That's that's not what this was all about. Uh, And I knew it right away. And I just wanted to take a moment to uh, high five you because I know many of you listening agree with me as you let me know after the show. Uh, via you know email and uh, on Facebook, but really the best way if you ever want to send me a message, facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. You can just send send a direct message there. Uh, the whole Freedom Hut team here is uh, in and out of the uh, of our Facebook account, but you know I I read the messages as they come in. I respond as quickly as I can. Um, but back to CNN, this because this is I've been waiting a while for this one uh, because I I parted ways on good terms with CNN, but I just couldn't be a part of what was going on with the Trump coverage anymore. I mean, you had just so many Trump people that were on air being treated really in a uh, in, in a disgraceful fashion, being really undermined, and it was nasty, and the Trump people just getting ambushed all the time. And I know there were, you have to understand, there are some people that they put on air a lot who maybe do a reasonably good job as Trump supporters, but to CNN's core audience, Democrats who live in major cities on the coasts and maybe Chicago, but Democrats in major cities uh, in and around them, that's CNN's core audience. Uh, they like to see a certain kind of person on air defending Trump, uh, whether it's somebody who's, uh, you know, a, a little, I don't know, a little awkward or a little goofy or a little, that's, that's what the, somebody who's a little, hey, you know, I like Trump. Hey, yeah, yeah, I like Trump. I'm great. You know I mean? There's, there's a lot of, um, the, the picking, it's almost like they're casting a movie sometimes, right? The way they pick people to put, uh, put them on these panels and on air. And a lot of this, a lot of, let me just tell you this. They didn't, they weren't using the best Trump defenders they could find all the time. Uh, and they also had no use for conservatives who weren't either in that category or the bashing Trump. I'm a conservative who just wants to bash Trump or even better. I mean, if you really wanted some career prospects on the left, you had to be a conservative who was willing to say you'd vote for Hillary over Trump. Th- then you then you probably got re-signed. Then you had a contract for 2017 and things were looking good for you. Um, and by the way, do not be surprised for one second. I- I'm honest with you about it. Very few people in media will be. Uh, the drive for ratings and the profit motive is the primary content motivator for over 95% of people in this business overall, and even for a majority of the people on the right. That's right. Whatever gets numbers, whatever gets money, that's what they'll say. That's what they'll do. Media is a gross business. So I, I tell you the truth about this because I want us to have a, a an, an open and an honest dialogue here on the show all the time. I know it's mostly a monologue, but you call in, you email me, we talk, we go back and forth. Uh, so that's that's the situation over there at CNN. You also had these uh, uh, O'Keefe videos. You had another O'Keefe video. We'll get to that. You have Elmo, you know, the latest on the health care, or you have... Uh, Trump talking about immigration. I want to discuss that with you. I've got some history to talk to you about later on in the show. Very interesting day today in history. For those who don't know, don't don't Google it now. Wait, I'll get there. Uh, we'll also talk about how some women uh, who were lesbians uh, marching in a lesbian parade 
who wanted to show the Star of David were kicked out of the parade because Star of David is a sign of oppression, according to the modern left. I mean, we've got a, we've got a lot of topics to cover. Like I said, immigration, health care, we'll get in here, too. I'll continue with a little bit of our discussion of the uh, the siege of CNN, which is going to be lifted, I think, here within a few days. Uh, but for now, it's it's fun to get into it. We'll talk about that and much more. Your thoughts on this, by the way, 844-900-2825. Are you just, are you just enjoying seeing a bit of of uh, media squirming on the other side. You know, it's been a rough, been a rough couple of days for them. All right. So they, they got this uh, producer from CNN on uh, camera the other, the other day, what was it played this yesterday? Right. And he's saying, you know, it's, it's crap, the Russia thing, it's nonsense. And, and I said this to you because my guess is that the uh, fine folks at Project Veritas figured that this was a particularly good time uh, to use some of the momentum uh, that is currently against CNN, right? It's at CNN under siege um, to post their own work on how CNN is politicized and with the Russia investigation stuff and how CNN's really the heart of the resistance on TV. I mean, MSNBC is too, but but I mean, come on, right? Like everybody knows. I mean, MSNBC was effectively a a uh, Obama administration press office for eight years, uh, with well, really no real exceptions. I mean, I don't know. Sometimes in the morning show, they play conservative for a few minutes, but then it, it tends to fade away pretty quickly, um, and and not even really conservative, just kind of you know, G- old school country club GOP on the uh, more on Morning Joe. Uh, but the, <laughs> every time I do that, it looks, it looks like the guy's hanging out at a country club. He's always got like a sweatshirt on. He's, he's just, he's just chilling, you know, just, just look, I, I, you know, I wish somebody would pay me millions of dollars to hang out in the morning, not really read it on anything. Just be like, can you believe what's going on these days? And do you see this windswept hair that only took about 20 minutes in the makeup chair to get it looking like this? That's right. I'm wearing a pink polo shirt under my... Navy blue vineyard vine sweater. I mean, the whole Morning Joe thing is, oh, uh, yeah. And, of course, you know, now he's he's dating his co-host, which is, there's that. Um, I, you know, hey, I think they were both married beforehand, but, you know, what am I going to, you know, who am I going to, what am I going to do? Pass judgment on this? Not my, not my call, but it is interesting that that's, that's where things are now over there. Okay, so uh, where was I before I got all caught up in, occasionally when I'm, when I'm, uh, I'm up in the morning. I see that show. Oh, yeah. Okay. So MSNBC, CNN. Uh, we had the CNN producer, and he's saying stuff about how he doesn't really like, uh, he doesn't really, um, well, he, he thinks that the Russia stuff is nonsense. And I said this to you because I like to be honest with you. And I, I know it's, I could come in here every day and be like, the alt-right, I'm sorry, the alt-left media, the alt-right media, the alt-left media is destroying America and just scream about it. And scream about the, you know, about the destruction of the Constitution and sovereignty and everything. I mean, I, I know what's out there, folks, right? Like, I'm, I'm aware of, of this, uh, this general ecosystem of, of talk radio. Um, and, and to me, that's, that's just not, I, I like to look at ish, every issue individually and try to bring some, uh, some insight, some information and some analysis to it. Um, and uh, 
this isn't hard. I'm not pretending to be some scholar of uh, CNN producers' opinions here, but it's just some guy at CNN, and that, that's not enough. That that's not like you know when look when they had uh, when the Center for Medical Progress has senior Planned Parenthood figures discussing horrific things that has an impact just because of what they're discussing, right? So I mean that's that's different uh, when you're talking about. Some guy who's given his political opinions or his opinions about the coverage at CNN. I mean, it's kind of a so what. I mean, like I said, it really is. You know, and we invited, uh, uh, we invited. Oh gosh, I'm forgetting James O'Keefe uh, on the show, and uh, he's been on before, but I guess he's really busy right now. So I invited him on because I wanted to ask him what he thinks about this. But they also got someone else on camera. I want to play the audio for you right now. Uh, this is from the Project Veritas. Uh, American Pravda CNN series. Here's what they say about Van Jones, or here's what Van Jones says. The Russia thing is just a big nothing burger. Really? You don't think that? Uh... There's nothing there you can do. No. You know, R- Russia thing is a nothing burger. Okay. Well, see, here's the thing. Uh, Van Jones is a pundit. He is an on-air analyst. Now he is treated with. He's had his own show at CNN. He's treated with tremendous. Reverence at CNN, and and I will tell you, and this is probably not a a thing you'll hear from a lot of conservatives. He is uh, in in person a very uh, friendly and charming guy. So and, and is a pretty adept debater. You know, he's there are some people over at CNN that I'm like, well, this is going to be you know this guy, even with the anchor jumping in on their side and, and all the other, uh, you know, the, the cutting me off and everything. I'd be like, well, this this person's a this person's a clown. They're not going to be able to. You know, hold hold up their side of the debate. It's going to be obvious to anyone who's fair minded, which very very small percentage of CNN's audience is. But uh, but but Van Jones is he's got he's got some on air skill. Uh, he you got to be he'll he'll box you into a corner. I've seen him do it to some some pretty smart conservatives. Uh, but that's not even really, that's really neither here nor there for what I'm going to tell you, which is just that okay. So Van Jones is saying he thinks Russia's a nothing burger. Van Jones is not that that's not it doesn't really matter. Right. We already know that CNN because of the coverage, because the stories, because of the retractions. So I appreciate what Project Veritas is trying to accomplish here. And look, there's also the, you know, I'm I'm like uh, quarterbacking. I'm quarterbacking all this from the couch that are out there doing undercover journalism. And I can appreciate that, although I'm a little, you know, I think that the journalist ethics, when you're going to start recording people in the workplace for their private for their private political opinions i i'm a little iffy on that everyone i'm not as let, let's really think about that for a second now you you, you want to live in a world where you know if you're at a major company they're going to ask you know what if you work at disney what do you think of disney's you know h1b hiring bob you know while you're sitting at the water cooler and you know and then someone runs that as well see so, you know, employees of disney don't like the h1b policy i mean maybe you get fired you know what i mean yeah i I know, I know, I know. Alt, alt, left media, raw, raw. You know they're trying. I get it. I could sit. I could sit here and 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 yell about how the media's you know fighting Trump too, and I do. But I try to at least base it on what's really what's true and what's not in each individual skirmish or, or, or each phase of the battle, and not just uh, make it one big mess of a uh, you know. Look at how terrible they're being to Trump, and all the media is awful, and all the rest of it. You know, every channel except for one channel stinks. You know, yada yada. Uh, so Van Jones, that, that doesn't really do it in terms of making the case. 
I'm just I'm just saying. I, I don't think that this is uh, a a profound undercover experiment or an undercover journalism expose. Uh, so that's my that's my honest opinion of it. And uh, you do have some folks at CNN who are pretty upset about all this, though, I should note. Here's uh, Clarissa Ward, who's a reporter over there. At what point does this become dangerous? And I'm not just talking about dangerous oh, in terms of tearing point. at the social fabric. I'm talking about dangerous as in a journalist gets hurt. Because I can tell you working overseas in war zones, you know, people are emboldened by the actions of this administration, emboldened by the all-out sort of declaration of war on the media. If I'm getting it in the neck, Chris, I can only imagine what someone like you is dealing with. I, at what point does this become reckless or irresponsible? Um, okay, so I, I need someone to explain this to me. We're told the whole world hates Trump. We're shown polls. In fact, I saw Pew polls earlier this week that the only country that substantially likes us more is, anyone want to guess, according to the Pew poll? Russia. Uh, earlier this week, so that, that's all come out. The whole world hates Trump, we're told. He's an embarrassment to America. He's terrible. But because Trump criticizes the American media, someone is going to... I mean, you know, what, what does that have to do with being in war, like war zones and overseas? I don't really get that. What's what's the what's the connection? What's the connection there exactly? Um, and I, I do think it's interesting that, you know, here we are with people discussing the possibility of an intemperate climate or a climate of just open and outright hostility uh, surrounding uh, the political discourse in this country and all, what is it? It's been a week or so since we had a, an attempted mass assassination of Republican members of Congress by a Bernie Sanders supporting leftist Democrat. OK, but we're still going to be told that Trump's the problem. Uh, has there, where, where has the big violence been? Can, can anyone just off the top of your head, can you think of violence uh, from a I'm trying to think of something like this where, where there's been violence against a member of the media uh, based on what Trump has said or based on each. I, I mean, maybe I'm forgetting something, but nothing, nothing comes to mind. Uh, but here we are. Media always concerned, of course, about, you know, their own. Uh, their own greatness and their profession. And I think that CNN right now is feeling it in a way that it hasn't in a long time because they were playing really close to the edge with this Russia stuff. I know it's been great for ratings, but there's not going to be any collusion evidence found and it's just not going to happen. And there's now a bit of a of a deafening silence when you start to say, OK, so what was all that about exactly? How is it? I mean, if you look at the statistics overwhelmingly the main story since January on CNN and other networks has been Russia collusion. What have we learned about Russia collusion? How can this be the primary news story in the country for six months? And we haven't, there's no, there is no collusion. How can a story for, be the main story for six months when we don't even really have a story? That's, my friends, uh, the question that we need to be asking. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. So uh, CNN, we're going to continue on this a little bit. They I couldn't believe this. They have used Sesame Street's Elmo. Elmo. 
That's a pretty good Elmo. Um, they've used Sesame Street's Elmo in order to e- explain Trump's travel ban. This is absolutely crazy stuff here. Uh, here we go. For- Sherry went to Jordan together. We did. And it was really wonderful because Elmo got to meet a lot of new friends. A lot of new friends. And did you find that the Syrian little girls and little boys were a lot like your friends here in America? Yeah, they really were. It was very interesting. You know, it was really sad because Elmo's new friends and Jordan told Elmo that they had to leave their homes because it wasn't safe for them to stay. And that made Elmo really sad. And sometimes I'm a little bit scared. I'm sure. And why do you think, Elmo, that it's important to help other children? Well, Elmo just thinks it's really important to be kind to people and to treat people the way that you would like to be treated. Then, uh, according to Daily Wire here, because that was part of a panel with with David Miliband from the uh, International Rescue Committee, And he said, it's worth saying, perhaps, especially today, that this country, the U.S., receives very few refugees. And there's a lot of fear and loathing being put out. So, yeah, look, I can't I can't I'm not going to criticize, you know, Elmo saying that kids everywhere, kids everywhere, you know, Elmo love everyone. I mean, you know, okay, fine. That's that's fine. But you got a bunch of CNN. Well, no, Miliband is a what is he's like a British. Yeah. Sorry. Politician. Um, Now, the international rescue committee um but uh you got a bunch of people who are sitting there and they're using uh sorry david miliband is uh yeah he's a british labor party politician that's what i thought um and he is ceo of the international rescue committee they're talking about the refugee camps in syria i've by the way i've i've been to the refugee camps in syria i've had a similar experience of talking to I'm sorry, not in Syria, in Jordan. That's where the Syrian refugees are. The most well-known campus called Zatari. It's out in the desert. It is it is an incredible experience, and, and I do recommend if you're ever in a country, look, if you're on vacation, it's not something you do on vacation, but if you can, if you work in an industry where, uh, you know, maybe on a work trip or you just you really want to know or you maybe want to do some humanitarian work, uh, volunteer your time, uh, going to see a refugee camp, which is, in the case of Zatari, uh, was 100,000 plus people when I was there in the middle of the desert and in tents, it's, it is illuminating and it stays with you and you remember it to be sure. Um, but, uh, you know, it's the, the connection between a refugee camp in Jordan and that was made on this panel and Trump's uh, refugee policy that was alluded to, it didn't seem like it was explicitly made here, but... Uh, it just goes to the the general feeling that a lot of us have um, in the, over the course uh, that they'll do anything, including propagandizing to children to convince them that, you know, America under Trump is mean to refugees or something like that. Uh, so they did this 15 minute long long segment and uh, they're using Elmo here and they're giving speeches about uh, refugees and how everyone's just like everyone else and you know look i get it right they're trying to talk to kids about this but in reality i think there's there's a a political backdrop to this and it goes to the uh, storyline that everything now has to be political all the time you can't even have sesame street characters that aren't a part of a discussion that is in some way uh, politicized so okay 
Um, moving on from that, you also had uh, Trump talking today because you know I don't, I don't want to get too bogged down uh, in the late the latest goings on at, at CNL. I did find you know I, I think it's just a matter of time before all of a sudden we have you know Elmo wants people to have health care. Trump care is bad. I mean I, I think it's just a matter of time before we're going to have something like that. Uh, it just just you wait and see. Uh, you're going you're to be getting lectures on Obamacare or on the Republican health care bill uh, from Elmo uh, and, and how Elmo doesn't want grandma to die. But, you know, clearly Trump and the Republicans don't care about grandma. Right. I mean, that's or or poor people or, you know, or, or people that have terrible born with terrible diseases, whatever the case may be. Uh, but Trump isn't uh, stopping just because it seems like Mitch McConnell right now has uh, stalled out with the health care bill. He's moving on. He is moving on to the issue of immigration. And uh, today, uh, because things with health care are, uh, are uh, not moving quite as quickly as people would have liked, uh, Trump had a, a meeting, uh, a meeting with victims of immigration, uh, with, with crime from illegal immigration, uh, the, the victims from it. And he said that this is from NBC News. Trump lashed out of the pundits, journalists and politicians in Washington who, quote, refused to hear your voices. But on Election Day 2016, your voices were heard all across the entire world. No one died in vain. Uh, I can tell you that. So uh, Trump seems to be uh, moving uh, to this next this next issue here. And uh, I think it's. Not the first, look, it's not the first time this has happened. I mean, when they didn't get health care through on the House originally, there was definitely a, well, now we'll move to you know immigration or we'll move to taxes or something else. Uh, they do need to start racking up some actual wins here or some, some legislation, I should say. Is it a win or not? You have to wait and see what the legislation is. But they need to get some, some points on the board. This can't just be, well, eventually, you know, the next time. Uh, and I'm concerned, by the way, because they're they're making a it's a very full plate after the Fourth of July recess. You're going to have uh, health care to deal with. Uh, you're going to have uh, budget reconciliation uh, or, or budget talks and the debt ceiling. Um, you're going to have tax reform supposed to get jammed in there. All this is going to have to happen in a pretty brief window. Uh, before, you know, once the fall comes around, all you're going to be hearing about is the mid is, is midterms, you know, who's running the midterms, what the, who's being primaried and all that stuff, or at least that'll be what a lot of the punditocracy is spending its time on. So they got to move on this. And I, I think that meeting with the immigrants, uh, I'm sorry, meeting with the victims of illegal immigrant crime is a, a step in getting the nation to, to focus more on this. And it's a a counterbalance, I think, an effort to counterbalance what has been a, an incredibly uh, continuous campaign of propaganda, once again, uh, from the media on how immigration, including illegal immigration, forget about immigration, illegal immigration is good for the country. We've been told this for a long time. In fact, it's not just good for the country. It happens to have... No ill effects, no costs uh, to speak of, really. It just grows. Uh, it grows our GDP. It, it grows the economy. Uh, they do the jobs Americans won't do. Americans are too lazy to do these jobs now. I mean, th- this is what we've been told for a long time. 
and uh, these statistics about crime and immigration are you start to you intuitively are like, wait a second. Why is it that the uh, the most wanted list in some parts of the country has a you know the top ten most wanted for whatever the sheriff's department or FBI or whatever it may be in in one part of the country or another uh, that has a high level of illegal immigration? You see people on list, you're like, well, uh, it seems to me that there are a a fair number of uh, Based on the biographies you read of like the most wanted, you're like, oh, so this guy came to the country recently. <laughs> this is this is a, a new thing. This is a new phenomenon. As in this person came to the country illegally, uh, shouldn't be here in the first place. Uh, but yeah, we're told that illegal immigrants commit fewer crimes than uh, native born Americans overall. Once again, so non-Americans, media's Bottom line is that non-Americans are somehow more ethical and harder working and more law-abiding than Americans, including non-Americans who break the law to come to America. They're more law-abiding, more ethical, and more hardworking than Americans. This is this is the narrative. This is the storyline that has been rammed down our throats for quite a long time. All Americans, including legal immigrants from all different backgrounds and ethnicities, we are all being told this right that that illegal immigrants. Uh, are uh, better in a variety of capacities than all of us in this country are, which it, it's it would be a, a kind of nonsensical debate or discussion except for the fact that there are real policy implications from it because they're, they use that uh, barrage of talking points to try and convince people that we should have more or less a, a, an open border uh, or at least no, no enforcement of immigration laws, which is pretty close to, I mean, a, a truly open border, I guess, would just be waving everybody in. You don't have to stop. You don't have to check in. I think that the even the far left Democrats, you know, they want to know, they want you to stop and see if they can find a way to tax you or, you know, but but they're they're not going to stop you from coming into the country. Uh, and and Trump knows that crime is a, is a place of real sensitivity on this because illegal immigrant crime should be happening not at all. Because the, the person that's committing the crime shouldn't even be in the country. And if the laws were enforced, they wouldn't be in the country to commit the additional crimes. Remember, we're not, they're not having a meeting about how sad they are about you know, the presence of some illegal immigrants in their neighborhood or something. They're having meetings of people that have lost loved ones, that have suffered violent, uh, violent crimes, rapes, murders, because of illegal immigrants. So you know, this is an issue where we need to see some legislation. We need to see some action from Congress. But... Here's a prediction that I think you'll all find pretty safe. Uh, if you think that members of Congress on the Republican side get a little a little weak need, get a little wimpy when it comes to dealing with Obamacare and our health care system, oh my, just wait until the issue of amnesty and immigration and all that's on the table. It is... You will see... Repul- I mean, look, you got guys like Paul Ryan who are just basically in favor of amnesty. Straight up, calls himself conservative in favor of, am- I mean, f- favorable towards the concept of amnesty at a minimum. He's Speaker of the House. So what does that tell you? It's going to be interesting. man. This is, you know, you think healthcare has been fun. Just wait till we really get down to get down to uh, the, the the reality, the 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 truth of the immigration debate. All right. I know we're I'm, I'm moving around a lot, which is just the way it's going to be today. Uh, because you'll notice no big, oh my gosh, the Kremlin is sending secret encoded messages to Trump's 
surrogates on planet Mars. It's an intergalactic conspiracy. Oh, my God. You know, not, none of that. Not today, at least. Not today. Uh, we got some calls up. Maybe we'll take some of your thoughts. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. 844-900-BUCK. 844-900-2825. Also got Joe Concha joining. We're going to be talking about Bitcoin later on in the show. Talked to you about the, uh, yes, today is the uh, anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, which led to uh, World War One, which was a, a big deal. And I've uh, got some other things to discuss with you as well, team. Uh, so, stay right there. Bobby in North Carolina on WPTI. Hey, Bobby. Hey, how are you doing, Doug? I'm good, man. What's going on? I uh, wanted to make a comment. Uh, right before the last break, uh, there was a uh, journalist, I think, that was making a statement about what happens to other journalists in uh, uh, war zones. Uh, yes, there was a CNN journalist. Right. And I'm, I'm thinking, why not just stay here and make it up like they've done for the last year. Um, they've lost their credibility anyway, so what's the point? Um, you want to be safe? Stay at home? Just get an anonymous source? And- well, but I don't understand how, how Trump, atta- Trump disagreeing with the media in this country makes the media abroad less safe when, as I said, that we're always told that everyone around the world hates Trump so much, right? So why would that influence anyone anywhere? And first of all, the only I mean, the only people that would take I mean, if you're the kind of person that would be violent against somebody in the media for no reason, what Trump says, I mean, you know, around the world, what Trump says has nothing to do with anything, really. Yeah. And, and, and you know, I can't uh, understand the philosophy behind that, because uh, if they don't like Trump, then why would they listen to anything he says anyway? And, um, you know, it's no more dangerous than it's ever been. Uh, for a journalist, uh, I think just being in those areas makes it dangerous. Um, I don't think that uh, Trump saying what he said about the media would have any any play in, in what happens. I hear you, Bobby. Um, uh, wait, he, he wouldn't have any play in what? Repeat, I, I said I hear you, but actually I missed the very end there. What did you say? I, I don't think Trump's words would have anything, you know, any play in what happens. Uh, to a journalist overseas, and yeah, I, I don't. I mean, I, I don't either. I don't, I don't know what. I mean, she, she's. I'll be honest. With you, she's actually a good reporter uh, and does some good work. Does some very good work overseas. But reporters are all culturally anti-Trump, right? So when they come back here, they all want to. They all, whether they do good work overseas or not, they come here and they hate Trump. So Bobby, thank you for calling in. Uh, Scott in Florida on WFLA. What's up, Scott? Hey, Bo. We love you down here, man. Hey, Mr. Uh, Scott, we, lo- we love you up here in the Freedom Hut, brother. What's going on? <laughs> we love our president. I'll her solid. No problems. For our president, the senior, delicious. Uh, our president is, 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 is great. I didn't hear that. He cut off there for a second. What was that? Well, I heard it. We love our president. So I guess that's usually Scott's not the first time Scott's told me that. So it's good. To, hey, uh, down in Florida, I'm told that they love Buck and they love they love uh, President Trump. So I'll take it. They've got good taste down in down in Florida. Uh, I didn't hear what he said at the very end, though. But uh, but I digress. But there you go. Sorry, I'm having a little bit of audio trouble here. Uh, I was I mentioned before journalists and where they stand on all this stuff. Um, 
Daily Wire, Ben Shapiro's uh, website, which uh, I really have to say I really like as a site. They do good stuff. Uh, 7% of journalists are Republican. Uh, in 2016, not a single White House reporter was a Republican. 88% of them thought that Hillary Clinton was going to win the presidential election. 96% of media donations to presidential candidates went to Hillary Clinton. Uh, 51% of all newspaper and internet publishing jobs are in counties that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. And 80% of the media's coverage of Trump in his first 100 days was negative. Yep, that's pretty much the way it is, everybody. You already know that. I'm, I'm well aware, but... The uh, the Trump hatred is just people are are crazy about it. I mean, crazy with it. Trump derangement syndrome is is very real, and the media is just all on board for it. And so the uh, the CNN siege that's going on right now is is an interest is an interesting moment because finally we're seeing some focus on you know you guys have really been running with this Russia stuff hard for a long time. I mean, I I had nights where. I was hearing from people like I was somehow the, you know, I, I, I'm the weirdo because I don't believe the president is a traitor who sold out the country to Russia. Like, I, I, there's something wrong with me, according to a lot of people I knew in media. Not on the right, but some of them. There's there's some never-Trump conservatives that have bought into all this stuff. And, I you know, it, it makes, that's one of the reasons why I find Twitter to be more and more depressing is I see people saying stuff on Twitter that are conservatives with real followings, and I'm just like, you know, uh... Your whole thing about how you know Trump is a fascist and and is a traitor, it's it, you really need to stop. You're embar- you're embarrassing yourself. But no, I guess you know they don't view it as embarrassing themselves. It's collusion. Things going nowhere. All right, uh, we're going to be joined by our friend Joe Concha here to talk about some of the latest. Uh, also, want to discuss with you some comments from Susan Rice earlier today, as well as uh, everything else that I've mentioned. We'll hit that uh, on the show and. Uh, Cameron Diaz was behind me in line today for coffee, so I got that going for me, which is nice. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? Shields High. Welcome back, everyone. We've got Joe Concha on the line, media reporter and columnist for The Hill. His latest on TheHill.com. Will the media learn from CNN's mistakes? Prepare to be disappointed. Mr. Concha, good to have you, sir. It's good to have you. I call you BS because that's, those are your initials, obviously, but you are the opposite of fake news, Buck. You tell it like it is. I, I do. And and technically my initials are JBS, but BS has a fun ring to it. So I, I go with that, too. Um, let's let's get into a few things here. First of all, I've had a slightly different take on the whole CNN thing than some others. Uh, I, I found it interesting to see these conservatives saying, oh, look at CNN doing the doing the right thing here by pulling this piece. Um, I'm rather familiar with CNN. I know how the editorial lines there work. I understand what most of the people in that building in that newsroom think. And this on, on two levels, I think, is, is wrong. This, oh, CNN should be applauded for retracting this story. Uh, one, this is symptomatic of a larger problem they have of rushing to cover Russia. And two, uh, there's a legal issue as well. So I think applauding them is not really the way to go about this, but I do want to hear what you think. 
Well, I, I'm in the same boat as you. I, I've seen all the, the praise saying, see, CNN did the right thing. They aren't fake news. Look at the accountability that they applied here to these three reporters. Wait a minute. These three reporters, Buck, are very decorated. They've been around the block for a while. You make a mistake. Even I would say, and I'm usually pretty staunch as far as, you know, apologies are nice, but there needs to be accountability. But I wouldn't have fired these guys. And that's what happened here. I mean, this wasn't a resignation. Obviously, it was a forced one. Uh, so I would have suspended them maybe or, or uh, yeah, I would have suspended them for a week or two and then had them apologize. But I, I don't fire those guys unless I'm compelled to because there's a merger coming up with AT&T. And I got to make sure that the Time Water AT&T thing goes through. And that means uh, taking out the trash and showing that you're, you're trying to be serious as far as your editorial judgment. But look, I mean, you're, you're exactly right. This story was based with three reporters, mind you, on one unnamed source and we know all about unnamed sources because they have a motivation to lie in these situations uh, a motivation to push a narrative that may or may not exist and these reporters are all too willing to eat it up because it's negative towards trump and the same thing happened a couple weeks ago with comey and trump and comey was supposed to refute that trump said he wasn't under investigation he does the exact opposite and that story was worked on by gloria borger the bylines anyway and two other reporters and nothing happened to them so if the rule is we're going to start firing people over making mistakes over the Russia story, then what happened with Borger, Tapper, and the other reporters exactly? That's what I want to know. Well, also, all the mistakes that seem to happen over there surround this one issue, and that's uh, surprising, isn't it? I mean, that's quite a coincidence, I should say. It's not surprising, but that there seems to be a, a, a repetition of errors that only happen when they're covering one area of the entire world and all the different healthcare, immigration, national security, everything that's out there on Russia collusion, Trump stuff, uh, or just Russia Trump stuff. That's where mistakes seem to happen. And I think that people would have to be coincidence theorists coming up with elaborate rationales for why this keeps only occurring in that area. Uh, but what do we know about the, the lawsuit, by the way? I, I heard that they or I've read, I should say, that they faced a hundred million dollar lawsuit over this story. Yeah, they, they, that was reported. Uh, and it's probably true, right? I mean, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, who was the, the story was based on, uh, apparently called, and something happened that got somebody's attention real quick, and that story came down in a hurry, first with no explanation. It was just deleted. Uh, then they made sure that a correction was made. Uh, but look, I mean, to your point around, well, a lot of mistakes were made around Russia. That's because Russia is getting the most at-bats by a country mile. I mean, it's all the network seems to cover. And, I mean, you were there, I think, during the uh, Malaysian air crash right oh yeah (laughs) well i was there but never on air because the plane right right you're getting paid for doing nothing basically which is a great thing but but can be frustrated and then russia became the plane they they decided to cover it wall to wall but uh, again i think there is a certain pressure within that building not maybe not written maybe not coming directly from somebody with a finger in your face but when 93 percent of your stories are negative towards donald trump and his administration that's according to a harvard study not exactly a bastion of conservative thought uh then i would think that Every day there needs to be a bombshell, something that CNN can break to show its viewers that it's advancing a Russia story that isn't going anywhere. I mean, I I quote Chris Murphy, uh, Buck, who is a senator from uh, Connecticut. He says he takes the bus home every day so he could kind of talk to constituents that aren't necessarily politically involved that kind of go to rallies. And they said that they – he said that they don't want to talk about the Russia story. They don't want to talk about what's seen on cable news every night. They want to talk about wages, public safety, and education. And those are three topics that I can guarantee you 
CNN is not covering in any capacity. Well, you'll notice that when there's not, and by the way, everyone, we're speaking to Joe Concha. He's a media reporter and a columnist for The Hill. Uh, you'll notice that when there's not a major Russia story, you go over to CNN and it's kind of like, you know, hey, maybe we'll cover some sports today on the front page. I mean, they don't really have much. <laughs> Well, uh, I think Michael Goodwin, who is a great uh, writer for the New York Post, said it best. He said, you know, CNN used to be boring and trustworthy. Now it's boring and untrustworthy. And that's that's the situation they face. Because, Buck, think about it. No Trump supporters ever going to watch CNN again, fairly or unfairly. Either they watched it and they didn't like what they saw with these panels seven to one. You experienced that, I'm sure, in terms of being ganged up on. So those those people are out. That's 40 percent of the country, we'll call it, 45 percent. Uh, and then liberals don't really like CNN because they figure MSNBC, at least, is more transparent around who they are. So who's left exactly to, to watch that network? And I keep hearing how great CNN is doing and how they had their greatest, uh, second greatest quarter ever last quarter. Well, guess what? They're still in a distant third place. They can't even get a million viewers uh, in prime time on week, weekday nights. I mean, that's that's a tough thing to do when you have the resources they do. So they're in big trouble right now. And the problem is, again, uh, it was one thing when they at least did good work, like during the Gulf War. I mean, they were excellent. But now I don't know if they really have an identity. And if you take away Russia, then they really don't have anything at all. I also appreciate your take on the uh, there, there's a lot of, of angst right now in the media, particularly from CNN, uh, about the change in uh, on-camera briefings. You tweeted out uh, that Mike McCurry and Ari Fleischer had both made the, this argument for a while. Jim Acosta's daily attempts to go viral are proving them 100% correct. I totally agree. There's no there's no special constitutional right to get a chance to berate the administration every day on TV for your constituents. That, that doesn't exist. No. Uh, and Mike McCurry, uh, Buck, he is the one, and he, remember, was the press secretary under President Bill Clinton. And he thought it was a good idea, and I probably would have too at the time, uh, that, hey, let's bring cameras into the press briefings in the early 90s in an effort to be more transparent to, to show the people that, that we're communicating uh, with, with journalists on a daily basis. McCurry, when you ask him now, was that a good idea? He says it was a horrible idea because it only led to theatrics and reporters playing to the crowd, and even press secretaries for that matter, and you didn't get anything that resembled substance. And Ari Fleischer, who was George W. Bush's press secretary, agrees with him. So when Jim Acosta says, goes on these soapboxes, I mean, the guy should get an endorsement deal with Iris Spring already. I mean, it's every day. He keeps talking about how this suppresses his First Amendment right and how press briefings by not having cameras is un-American. Uh, Jim, were you around from 1929 to 1994? Because they didn't have cameras then either. So I, I can't believe what I'm seeing from Jim Acosta because I really, if you asked me a year ago, would say he's a good, solid reporter. I really wouldn't give you much of an opinion because he stayed off the radar. Now he's fallen in love with the fact that he goes viral every day with these Aaron Sorkin soaring kind of speeches around free speech. And he looks unhinged. I, I can't put it any other way. He really is coming across now, Buck like a caricature of a reporter instead of just a good senior White House. Well, well, he's one of he's one of many over there at, at CNN. And and well, MSNBC, I think, doesn't even particularly try to play the big J journalism game as much anymore. Uh, but who's who at least outwardly seem to believe that they don't have a political bias uh, of any kind and that they're just mainstream reporters. Acosta tweeted out, you know, cons the president asked conservative questions and then berates the press as though, okay, well, under Obama, the president was just asking friendly outlets questions all the time. I mean, do we really pretend like that's not what was happening? A little education for Jim Acosta, Buck. During President Obama's first 36 solo press conferences, Fox was called upon 14 times. 
That means 22 times out of those 36 times, they were what's called boxed out in the press room. In other words, Obama didn't call on him because he didn't want to take what he probably would deem as a tough question. So this is how it works now. If you're going to declare war on an administration the way CNN and particularly Jim Acosta has, then you're not going to get a question, and you're not entitled to get one. There are 50 other reporters in there, and don't complain every day when you don't get to ask a question because there are days and weeks that go by that plenty of other reporters in there don't get to ask questions, but at least they act professionally. So – I swear he's not going to recover from this from a credibility perspective. He, he may get the retweets and he may get the stories and mediate and so on, but uh, he's not going to be taken seriously anymore by people that know what a professional looks like in this business. Joe Concha, media reporter and columnist for The Hill. Check out his latest, everybody, on thehill.com. Great to have you, Joe. Come back soon, all right? Hey, Buck. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it, man. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. The Republican senators had a really impressive meeting yesterday at the White House. We had close to 50 of them. We have 52. We need almost all of them. Uh, That's never easy. But we had essentially 50 show up to the meeting and the other two are on our side. Uh, I think we're going to get at least very close, and I think we're going to get it over the line. There was a great, great feeling in that room yesterday. And what also came out is the fact that this health care would be so good, would be far better than Obamacare, and would be much less expensive for the people, and actually much less expensive also for the country. So those are a lot of good factors. So we'll see what happens. We're working very hard. We've given ourselves a little bit more time to make it perfect. Among Trump's two biggest skills, uh, he is a a brawler, uh, verbally and in terms of with the media, right? And he's a salesman. He's good at selling. Uh, That's which is a skill that if if you have and you apply correctly, you can be uh, very wealthy, very prosperous and very powerful if you can sell well enough. He is good at selling. He often says he's a builder. But really, I think he's more of somebody who sells others on what to build and how to build it. Um, but I think he's selling this health care bill pretty well uh, under the circumstances. Uh, but the circumstances are not particularly strong. Uh, you have, for example, Senator Rand Paul, who, along with Susan Collins and a couple of others, are not not uh, they're not yet sold on this. Uh, and Rand Paul saying that, well, the objections to it are pretty obvious, and I, I tend to agree with the senator. Many of us don't think the current bill is repeal. And so, uh, you know, we, we voted 60 times yeah. to repeal it, all of it, or as much as we thought we could repeal, but we repealed quite a bit of it 60 times, and here we are now actually keeping quite a bit of it. If you look at our budget, we're $500 billion in the hole. We spend $500 billion more than comes in. Now, they play games with the baseline and say, oh, this is saving money. Nobody believes this is saving money. They're creating a brand new insurance bailout fund of $130 billion. There's no way that is paid for with savings. I think it's funny Washington math. I think the senator's right on both counts. It's, it's, not, uh, it's not a repeal, and, and it's not going to save money. Uh, you know, this is, we're using tax credits. They're, they're getting more creative with it. Uh, and keep in mind, the, the Medicaid savings that we're expecting are, uh, it's a long ways out, and they can always just change and up the Medicaid spending. Uh, 
Right. So when, when you're looking at a Medicaid projection or a, a, the uh, projections for Medicaid funding going out for a decade, you're engaging in a, in a fair amount of wishful thinking because who knows what's going to happen? Another Congress comes in, another president comes in, all of a sudden they're throwing money at this thing left and right. I think that's that is one of the uh, one of the realities here. No one seems like they really want to talk about. It. Of course, it, the the left only has uh, only has a certain playbook here, and it's to go uh, go with the, the the absolute hysteria. We're all going to die. Hundreds of thousands will die. You know, I'm sitting here. I'm like, yeah, I don't think it really does that much. It's a little too close to Obamacare. I mean, that's that's the that's the reality. That's the truth of this bill. But the way that the Democrats talk about this, it's they're, they're stealing, you know, they're they're stealing medicine from the mouths of babies. You know, they're they're taking insulin away from the elderly. They're, you know, they're they're no no more hip replacements for grandpa. I mean, that, that's the way that they're uh, projecting this. And you can see from, from some of the some of the protests. I mean, here's a protester outside of Senator uh, Toomey's office. For- So chanting and, you know, the usual kind of stuff. But, you know, he sort of, don't kill me, kill the bill, is what a protester was saying. <sighs> you know, I, I suppose that before Obamacare was passed, America was just like a scene from a Mad Max movie, right? Where just it was every man and woman for himself and uh, people were starving and dying of preventable disease in the streets. And it, it was may- it was mayhem. No, it wasn't, was it? So uh, what what did Obamacare really accomplish? By the way, the when they look at the health outcomes for it, the health outcomes are n- not particularly positive. Uh, there's n- not a lot to now they can they can show us cases uh, of individuals as they, and they certainly have of people that because of Obamacare uh, things were were covered um, that you know and they say they wouldn't have had insurance otherwise. But how many people have lost insurance? How much money has been spent trying to prop up Obamacare? How many uh, people have foregone treatment because they didn't want to pay the very high premiums of their crappy plans? And, you know, sometimes that decision, just that economic decision of, well, my Obamacare premium is or my Obamacare uh, uh, deductible is I've got to pay. Five thousand or six thousand or seven thousand dollars before it kicks in, so I'm not going to go see that specialist. Well, you know, if the specialist could have detected something, and you waited a few months, that that could be the difference. You know, they they don't factor that into the calculations, though. They don't they don't think about that. They just try to make this as much of an emotional argument as possible. Uh, as to where Mitch McConnell is on this, I actually had a discussion with a friend today over lunch about this. You know, he he was of the mind. That Mitch McConnell doesn't doesn't really want this to pass because the midterms will be better for the Republicans if they don't if they don't actually do anything on health care. I, I think that's just I, that has to be nonsense. <laughs> like that, I, I told him, too. He was not happy with my I'm like, like, there's no way that that complete and that winning the House, the Senate and the presidency and not having a, one major piece of legislation uh, because, by the way, I, I do not believe that they're going to go to the mat over the budget. I don't believe it. 
Uh, call me a, a big-time skeptic on that one. Uh, so w- where are they going to get the win? Maybe they get it on health care here. And then we'll see about tax reform. And tax reform could be a lot more sweeping than it is. It's better, but it's not amazing. So these are uh, these are the situations in which we find ourselves, uh, my friends. The uh, the healthcare uh, the healthcare repeal and replace process is certainly not what we were promised. It could be a lot better than it is. Poll here on uh, oh yeah CNN woohoo CNN coming through big time here CNN. Only seventeen percent approve of the Senate health care bill. Seventeen percent of people polled here. Um, with 55% of uh, national adults saying they outright disapprove of it. This is an NPR-PBS Marist survey. Uh, so the poll numbers on this are pretty bad. Now, I know we're in the era of Trump where polls don't seem to matter, and in fact, polls that show that Trump is certain to either be defeated or be wrong on an issue uh, tend to... Be, or have been many times uh, a bit worthless. So we shall see. Um, we'll see if the uh, Obama, uh, if the repeal or whatever we're calling it now, the American Health Care Act or the whatever the the Republican bill. I don't even know if what what they're what they're calling it. I mean, I know there was the American Health Care Act was what the House bill was, and the Republicans have their own their own thing. The the Republican Senate Health Care bill. Uh, we'll see if it's popular or not. Uh, oh, sorry. No, no. I found the name. The Better Care Reconciliation Act. Wow. Even the name stinks. The Better Care Reconciliation Act. The BICRA. Mm, BCRA. Nope, 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 nope. Affordable Care Act is a better name. I hate to say it. It's a better, better, it's a better name. The Better Care Reconciliation Act uh, sounds like weird political, you know, something's going on here. You're not sure what it is. You should have reconciliation. That shouldn't be in the, they should just call it the Better Care Act. Why? Yeah. They need to hire, they need to hire me. Bring some, bring some old, old school propaganda into, into effect here. I mean, this is nonsense. This is like basic Madison Avenue stuff. Keep it short. Keep it clear. Keep it. Uh, positive, Better Care Act. That's what it should be. The, the BCA, Better Care Act, Better Care Reconciliation Act. Republicans, you guys cannot, cannot uh, keep messing this thing up. But we'll see. Uh, we'll see. Only seven percent of those polled said they want the health care bill to do less than the uh, ACA currently does. Yeah, it's because everyone wants free stuff. Not everybody, but most people do. Uh, I want to talk to you about we're gonna, next hour. We're going to talk about Bitcoin, which is I know some of you are like Bitcoin, but why do you care? Well, you know, especially if you're somebody who worries about fiat currency and the Federal Reserve and the future of of uh, the the monetary system that we have. That's all built. It's just a credit system, really. Not enough cash in the bank. Not enough. Certainly not enough gold in the vaults. Not enough cash in the vaults. Uh, for the dollars that are out there and a, a lot of very complicated financial engineering going on. And what happens when you have currency that becomes increasingly widespread in its use that cannot be uh, 
you know, you can't, cannot suffer. You can't inflate it. There can't be any meddling with it. That's what Bitcoin's supposed to be. So we'll talk to you about Bitcoin. And then also uh, today is the uh, anniversary of the assassination of uh, Archduke Franz Ferdinand. Talk to you about how that whole situation went down and uh, much more. not somebody who gets excited uh, particularly about protest tactics like uh, sit-ins. I'm, I'm usually not, I, I don't like that. I, I don't like, uh, well, I shouldn't say I don't get excited about it. I, I generally condemn it. Um, I don't think shutting down a business's operations, uh, even through nonviolent means, is something that should be done except in the most extreme circumstances. Um, but I have to say this recent case that I read about in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, sounded like it all worked out. So here's what happened. Uh, a customer went into a Starbucks, which, I mean, can we all, you know, Starbucks, the McDonald's of coffee, you know, can we all just go into a Starbucks, buy our overpriced burnt coffee, you know, get a Nora Jones CD for $15 at the counter, just in case one of us still has a CD player, uh, which I doubt we do. Maybe get one of those little uh, sandwiches that they can heat up for you. Uh, and, you know, do your whole Starbucks thing without politics being a part of it, right? Can't, can't we do this? And sure enough, somebody went into a, a Starbucks in Charlotte. And I, I'm still not willing to do the... I've thought about doing the experiment here in New York City of walking around with like a Trump shirt and a MAGA hat on. Um, but that I don't want to deal with the fallout because I think it I think it might get really hostile and I just don't want any you know it's not worth not worth doing a little hidden camera or you know video camera thing and getting into a fist fight and for what right I mean people are hostile to Trump here we all know that so uh, but somebody was mean to somebody because they're wearing a Trump T-shirt at a Starbucks they were mock the staff was mocking a customer for wearing a Trump T-shirt and so a group of uh, over fifty people went into the Starbucks covered in Trump gear uh, to show their to show their trumpiness you know to show their their pro Trump and they sat down and now I will say they were patrons they ordered drinks they didn't uh, you know they didn't just sit there and not or they, what I don't like is when people shut down a business and they're not now they're costing the business money right it's really almost like stealing I mean they're you know blocking entryways or something you know, they, they sat down, they were perfectly civil and cordial, and they ordered their drinks. My favorite part of the protest, though, is that they, you know, at Starbucks, you have to, those of you who may not uh, know, um, they ask your name. And sometimes if your name, for example, like I'll sometimes say James, because if I say Buck, it always comes back as like Bart or, you know, Bill, or it's never actually Buck. And I have to repeat it three times. So I'll say James. Uh, which is my my first name, and uh, and sometimes there'll be another James, and that look you get from people in the morning when they haven't had their coffee, and you through no fault of your own have put your hand on their uh, soy mint latte frappuccino thing. Uh, it look you understand that civilization is really hanging by a very thin thread, my friends, um, because they look like they're about to. You know, rip your head off. Um, where was I in Starbucks? I forget now. 
Oh, yeah, so they say their names. And so they're back to Charlotte, back to the protest. 50 people. Someone was mean to a Trump supporter. The Trump supporters come back in, 50 of them. They sit in the, they sit in the Starbucks. They're ordering, though. But they order with names like Mike Pence, Jeff Sessions. I think that's kind of funny, you know? It's like, you know, what's, what's your name, sir? What would you like for your, your uh, you know, mocha soy latte or you know, mocha almond milk latte? There we go. That's a good drink. Check that one out. Um, I, I actually don't go to Starbucks very often, so I don't even know what the cool drinks are now. I know that there's like the white, there's a white mocha, which I think has like 700 calories in it. So there's, there's one way to get your, uh, <laughs> there's one way to get your, your fix for the day. Um, your caffeine fix. Uh, anyway, so they order the drinks with those, uh, with the names of Trump administration officials. And then everyone kind of laughed and they, uh, you know, and then it was, it, everyone got along. And uh, Starbucks has already formally apologized. Uh, the corporate office apologized for what was happened to the other, to the woman who went in there uh, earlier in the month when a woman named Kayla Hart was wearing a pro-Trump t-shirt. She was laughed at and shouted at, and they gave her a coffee with build that wall written on it. Can you imagine about being an employee at a place like this and, and to be, uh, willing to harass a customer in that way. I just would never occur to me. I don't know. I think that's, it's just, it's just rude, man. I mean, are we allowed to say that? It's just rude. Rick in New Mexico on the iHeart app. What's going on? Hey, Buck, Shields High. Shields High. Hey, man, on a side note, I just want to thank you, man, for being as young as you are. I mean, as a conservative, it's it's a breath of fresh air, man. I mean, you look at everybody else out there, it's really nice. I think that's part of your appeal is as young as you are and getting through to people like this. Thanks. But, I do what I can. But anyway, I just wanted to say that I think these Republicans on the health care bill, they know exactly what they're doing. They know this base is going to turn out. And uh, regardless, I mean, the fear of the other side is greater than what we'll get with them doing nothing. You know, inaction is better than action on the other side. And I just wanted your thoughts on that. Wait, what do you think the Republicans want? I don't think that they're they're going to meet middle. They're not going to do the Ted Cruz route no matter what. They, they know that these people, the Ted Cruz people, are going to show up to the polls and vote Republican regardless of what they do. It doesn't matter. So you think they want a moderate or moderated, uh, you know, moderation-filled bill? I think so. I think it please, it moves to the middle, and they know that the base is going to turn out no matter what. You think so? Is, I, 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 I don't know. I mean, if they if they have some wishy washy, uh, you know, crappy bill, I'm not I'm not sure the base turns out for them. I mean, at some point, maybe people just turn out. They, they don't care what the Republican Party does. It's just a, a being a Republican is almost like a social identification, right? Like I'm a Republican, therefore I vote Republican no matter what they do. But I, I do agree with you. I, I think there are a lot of members of the Senate on the Republican side that want a more. That, that want a moderate bill when all said and done, but they need to at least go through the motions of looking like they want something a little stronger, maybe. But, well, what they've got is a moderate bill. So what they've got is uh, tinkering with Obamacare. But, Rick, thank you. Shields high. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. What is Bitcoin? 
what is a cryptocurrency and how is it that this is now becoming a really big deal uh, with lots of money at stake and all kinds of uh, financial and economic implications for really the the whole modern economy? Uh, Let's talk to Naomi Brockwell about this. She's policy associate at the New York Bitcoin Center. She's also a producer, director and opera singer based in New York. She's originally from Australia. Naomi, great to have you. Great to be here. Okay, uh, what we've I've heard of it. People have heard of it. I've read news articles about it here and there. What the heck is Bitcoin? Like, just let's please start at give us a little Bitcoin one hundred and one. Bitcoin one hundred and one. Okay. Um, so first of all, it's very difficult to explain what it is, but it's also <laughs> okay. difficult to explain what the internet is. You know, uh, if I was to explain to you how your computer works, we can get very technical and it can get very complicated. But all you really need to know is that you can use the internet for some really amazing things. And that's basically all you need to know about Bitcoin. It's like money for the internet. If we're going to break it down more technically, really, it's all about the blockchain technology. And I'm sure that you've heard that buzzword thrown around. Everyone's talking about it these days. And basically, a blockchain is just an open ledger system. Um, Now, without going into too much technical detail, and obviously, I mean, I'm not the best person to talk to about all the technical details, um, but Bitcoin, really, whether you define it as a currency or a commodity, um, the essence of it is that it is a really amazing innovation for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, First and foremost, it gives people back financial freedom and financial privacy. And I think that that is just a huge step forward for society. Now, okay, but so it's a it's a, a cryptocurrency, a digital currency. What What is that? I mean, this is uh, people are used to, I'm sure, paying their bills by going to their online banking uh, and then they you know transfer money and they know that there's some electronic thing going on and there's, uh, you know, an, an encrypted site here and an encrypted site there. And the, the numbers on the screen change. I mean, how do you, you know, where, where does one get Bitcoins? Like if I wanted to get some Bitcoins right now, where do I go? You could get them the same way that you get your U.S. dollars. So you could earn them. People could uh, give it to you for your paycheck. You could go to a Bitcoin ATM. I know that there are a bunch of those around the city, around America, in fact. I hear that Sydney is actually rolling out a bunch of Bitcoin ATMs at the moment. And rather than ATMs, they're more like vending machines. You put in your uh, uh, government-backed money and you get Bitcoins in exchange. You can get them from meetup groups where you meet people and you transact in person, and you can get them on a huge number of exchanges. So, but but example, what is it? What am I physically? Am I physically getting something at this? Uh, at these? You know, you said these machines, these Bitcoin machines. Are they giving me like a USB drive? I don't understand. <laughs> so what they're doing is they're giving you a balance in an online wallet. I mean. I, it's hard to wrap your head around. Yeah. If you think of it like the way that U.S. money works at the moment. People rarely transact with actual paper money these days. Right. A lot of our transactions are done online. So when I pay someone using PayPal or using Chase QuickPay or any of those things, I'm not giving them physical money. I'm actually just sending numbers in a computer to someone else. And that's basically how Bitcoin works. And that's probably the easiest way to understand it. So if you're comfortable with the fact that when you send money online to someone and you're not giving them something that's green and made of paper and is in your hand, if you're comfortable with that idea, then it shouldn't be hard to wrap your head around Bitcoin. Bitcoin is just a really, really convenient tool. I mean, the U.S. banking system currently, it really operates as a credit system. 
Because when you give money to someone, when you send money to someone else, you're not really sending money to that person. What you're doing is basically giving them an IOU. And it takes several days to process. And there's a you know, billion, trillion dollar industry based on you know, verifying that that, tra- that transaction actually took place. And all these people are employed to make sure that this happened. And, and you know, there, there are all these systems and, and um, you know, central parties that have to go through to approve the transaction. It's all very complicated. So it takes a while for that money actually to get there. Bitcoin is instantaneous and it doesn't go through any of these clearing houses and it uses mathematics to verify these transactions. So it's actually far more secure than the regular banking system because basically you don't have to rely on people and the fallibility of people to verify these transactions. We're speaking to Naomi Brockwell. She's policy associate at the New York Bitcoin Center. We're speaking to her about Bitcoin, cryptocurrency, digital currency. Uh the price of a single Bitcoin I see here is at uh, over $2,500. It's up 165% this year. Uh, it was at a high of over $3,000 earlier this month. Uh, anyway, there, there is big money in Bitcoin now. How is this happening? There, there, there is. Really, it just has to do with market demand. So Bitcoin is unique in that there's no government fixing the price. It's not tied to anything. It's really just based on... The demand. If people want it, then there's going to is going to increase the demand, and uh, the price is going to fluctuate as a result. What I like about Bitcoin, as opposed to government money, is that it's really not subject to inflation. If you look at a lot of countries around the world, having government-controlled money can get very dangerous. I mean, we're very lucky in the United States. You know, our government is a lot better than most countries. But you look at Venezuela, uh, you look at any of these countries that have been subject to hyperinflation, it really is tragic to see these people lose their savings. Now, with Bitcoin, there's a finite supply. There's only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins in existence. And that's great because once that number is reached, you know, Bitcoin only will go up in value. You won't lose your savings. It it actually produces a savings economy. People want to save um, because the the money of the the, the value of their Bitcoin just goes up. And you don't see people like with all this money in their accounts just losing everything they have because the government has decided to just print all this money and it just devalues the the amount of the currency. Um, I mean, personally, I like Bitcoin because for me, it's a tool for financial freedom, basically because Bitcoin is decentralized. It means that there's no focal point that can be controlled. And now I just um, I use the example of WikiLeaks a lot of the time. The government was able to stop transactions and stop donations going to WikiLeaks by basically putting pressure on intermediaries like PayPal and credit card companies, and they stopped uh, they stopped WikiLeaks being able to get transactions. And that's that's really scary for me because it means that there's some central authority that's dictating where you can and can't spend your money. Now, with Bitcoin, uh, WikiLeaks was still able to receive donations. And for a long time, they received most of their donations in Bitcoin. And the same goes for for other organizations. I know that I I believe it's the Marijuana Policy Association. It's just an advocacy group for the legalization of marijuana. And apparently, their bank accounts shut down the account for them. And, you know, that's scary to me. I don't think that the government should be picking sides in terms of advocacy groups or any of this. I think people should have the freedom to uh, support causes that they believe in. And I mean, that's what America is. It really is it is it untraceable. So if you get bitcoins to somebody, they don't know where they came from. 
<laughs> no, no, not at all. In fact, people often say that, well, you know, Bitcoin, it's a great tool for money launderers and, and for uh, all of these bad criminals who want to do bad things. But it's actually not because Bitcoin is, a, is an open ledger system. It's very easy to trace where Bitcoins come from and where they go to. Um, and it, when you talk about black market in relation to, to Bitcoin, that's another real pro of, of Bitcoin. Again, in the United States, we're very lucky here. When we think about you know, black market, we think about drugs and things that our government here have made illegal. But the black market in somewhere like China or Venezuela is where they get their basic clothing, where they get their basic medicine, where they get their food to survive. And so Bitcoin can become a very powerful tool for still being able to access these things that are necessary for survival. So when we think black markets, we think all negative things, but that's just because we're very lucky in this country. Around the world, you know, there are people who are not so lucky. And in places like Venezuela, Bitcoin is literally saving lives. Naomi, we've only got about a minute. What do you see as the future here? Is, is Bitcoin going to continue to grow by leaps and bounds? Could you see this replacing currencies in some countries? What do you see happening? Well, I hope that Americans really embrace Bitcoin. I can't predict the future. But if I was going to, I would say that Bitcoin has a very healthy future ahead of it. It's incredibly exciting. It's a huge game changer for the whole financial industry. And when you have a government monopoly on anything, you really see a lack of innovation in that area. And money is, is uh, definitely not an exception here. There's been a lack of innovation in money for a very long time. Now comes along Bitcoin, and it really has produced such innovation on such a huge scale that's going to completely transform America and the financial industry as we know it. Naomi Brockwell, Policy Associate at the New York Bitcoin Center. Uh, go to bitcoingirl.org. Check out her latest. Naomi, thank you so much for uh, sharing your expertise on this. This is interesting stuff. Thank you so much. Uh, man, I feel like I was just hanging out with a character from The Matrix or something. That was some crazy next-level <laughs> stuff. I know that uh, Pride Parade in New York City was over the weekend, and uh, I think there were other Pride Parades across the country. Uh, I saw some of what was going on. Pride Parade, it was right down the street from me. I didn't catch on this story, though, until now. So uh, over the weekend, there was a lesbian march in Chicago, uh, which I, I did not I had not heard of until now. And there were a few women who had Jewish pride flags. These would be the flags that are rainbow-colored in the style of uh, gay pride, and they had the Star of David on them. They were kicked out. They were not allowed to march because it was considered a, quote, trigger. That's right, in the world of constant victimology and intersectionality. Remember, intersectionality is the belief that society is just one big conflict between all these different groups uh, uh, that are at layers or levels of oppression. And of course, white supremacy sitting atop all of it, white male supremacy and patriarchy is at the top, suppressing and and uh, oppressing everyone else. That's intersectionality. Uh, that's the interplay between all those different groups. The uh, the intersecting levels of oppression. 
And there was this claim that these women who are lesbians, who wanted to march in the lesbian parade, but were also Jewish and wanted to celebrate their Jewish heritage, uh, that was considered unacceptable because, quote, this is according to one of the organizers of the march, uh, it uh, made, quote, made people feel unsafe and that this group, which was called Dyke March, that's the name of the group, uh, didn't want anything, quote, that can inadvertently or advertently express Zionism. Let's just unpack this for a moment, shall we? So now, Jews, who are historically uh, among the most oppressed, and for the longest period of time, and at times in the most vicious ways the world has ever seen, Jews are not allowed to, in the world of leftist, progressive, orthodoxy, and intersectionality, are not about to celebrate are not allowed to celebrate their Jewishness or just display their Jewishness at an event that is also bringing together a lot of other leftist causes. And, and in a way, this is really a perfect summary of what intersectionality in practice turns into. It, it is uh, self-negating. It is self-contradicting. It is nonsensical. Originally, it comes from a, uh, an academic named uh, Kimberly Williams Crenshaw. Uh, that's where we get, and it was back in the 80s, that's where we get this notion of intersectionality. And I have to give credit to this piece, actually, in the, in the New York Times that says that, in pra- quote, in practice, this is in the editorial section, in the opinion pages, uh, and the title of the piece is, I'm glad the Dyke March banned Jewish stars. That's the title of the piece. Uh, and, and this author writes, in practice, intersectionality functions as kind of a caste system in which people are judged according to how much their particular caste has suffered throughout history. Victimhood, in the intersectional way of seeing the world, is akin to sainthood. Power and privilege are profane. By that hierarchy, you might imagine that the Jewish people, enduring yet another wave of anti-Semitism here and abroad, should be registered as victims, not quite. And then she goes into the why, and the why here is quite obvious because it has to do with Israel and oppression of Palestinians in the view of the left. And so what you have here is a situation in which uh, Jews, yes, historically oppressed really in a way that is hard to find any parallel to any other group, oppressed back into the days of ancient Egypt, and uh, still anti-Semitism to this day, of course, the, the Holocaust, six million Jews uh, killed, and all the pogroms against Jews in Europe. And I mean, it's just anti-Jewish sentiment, anti-Jewish feeling has been around for uh, millennia. Um, Anti-Semitism has been around for uh, millennia and the hysterias that uh, come with it. And that somehow that's not part of that that's not a victim group that's allowed to be part of the other victim groups just goes to show you how arbitrary this as it's pointed out caste system of victims really is uh, and it's because the Palestinians 
fall into two groups that are central to the modern progressives' view of uh, intersectionality and, and the power politics at play, and that is non-white, because Palestinians are considered non-white Arab, uh, and Muslims. So non-white Muslims, it, it, it's almost like uh, you know, you're, you're seeing this, it's like rock, paper, scissor, right? It's like rock beats scissor, paper beats rock, uh, non-white Muslim group is a more uh, important gr- oppressed group than Jews, and therefore, if the Jew- if the presence of Jewish groups upsets some non-white Muslim groups, or at least the uh, you know the, the banner display of Jewishness in some way of the Jewish star, then in the progressive ideology, in the progressive mind, uh, it is. You know, they they make this distinction and it this is really uh, I mean, intersectionality, just just like I said, it breaks down. And no surprise here when the left is exposed for what it truly is. It goes on the assault back to this piece uh, by Barry Weiss, The New York Times. That's why the march organizers and their sympathizers are now trying to smear Ms. Growers, one of the Jewish women who was banned from the march, as some sort of right wing provocateur. Their evidence she works at an organization called A Wider Bridge, which connects the LBGTQ Jewish community in America with the LGBTQ community in Israel. The organizers are also making the spurious claim that the Jewish star is necessarily a symbol of Zionist oppression, a breathtaking claim to anyone who has ever seen a picture of a Jew forced to wear a yellow Jewish star uh, under the Nazis. Uh, no, the truth is that it was no more and no less than anti-Semitism. Uh, just read Miss Shoshana Anderson's account of her experience, which she posted on Facebook. I mean, this is um, this is the problem with uh, intersectionality um, in practice. In theory, it's also completely flawed and uh, and Marxist and and discriminatory and destructive, and just creates dissension and and hatred among people eventually. Uh, but intersectionality, even in practice, they don't know what the rules are, but they enforce them with Stalinist zeal. Uh, so, yeah, you can be a a a, uh, a lesbian, you can be a gay woman, and try to march in the lesbian parade. But if you want to have a star of David with the rainbow flag, uh, they will kick you out because they view the star of David, they being the progressive left, as a symbol of oppression. And apparently don't know very much about the Star of David or the history of the Jewish people, or perhaps even more likely, they just don't care. Uh, We'll hit a break here, team. We'll be back and talk about how today is uh, an anniversary, uh, anniversary of a day of an incident that changed the world forever. And it started out as something that might have been a relatively uh, brief story in the news cycle of the time, but uh, it turned out to change the world, the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand. We'll get to that and more. The Freedom Hut rocks online, too. You can hang out with Team Buck anytime. Plus, get Buck's latest news and analysis. Go to BuckSexton.com. That's BuckSexton.com. Are you not entertained? The Buck is back. 
Today, June 28th, is the anniversary of one of the most significant events in world history. I'm speaking, of course, of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand on June 28th, 1914. He was killed by a Serbian nationalist named Gavrilo Princip in a somewhat haphazard and almost hard to believe but yet true assassination plot that then led to a series of events that hurtled Europe towards its first great war, World War I, which ended with over 8 million killed in combat and many more than that, millions more, though the true figure is not completely known, uh, civilians killed as a result of World War I. To this day, people will refer to a Franz Ferdinand or Ar- Franz Ferdinand or Archduke Ferdinand moment, a seemingly uh, insignificant or not particularly uh, important on the world stage event that then leads to much greater changes, and all of a sudden it becomes incredibly significant and is the uh, ignition point. It, it is the the lit match that then goes and starts an enormous forest fire. Uh, in this case, that fire being a war that killed many millions of people and, and changed the face of world history. Uh, we will never get back that lost generation of World War I. And of course, World War I and the Treaty of Versailles, which oddly enough was signed exactly five years after the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand on June 28, 1919, uh, the Treaty of Versailles ended World War One, but then led through a series of events and conflicts between nations uh, to World War Two, where tens of millions of people were killed. And it really, uh, through all the tragedy, horror, and loss, was also the beginning of a new world order and a modern era after the end of that war. So let's talk a bit about the assassination of Archduke Ferdinand. Oh, and I should note, Franz Ferdinand is also the name of a somewhat hipsterish uh, alt rock pop band, but the the original Franz Ferdinand, the one whose assassination led to the First World War and and changed uh, the planet and the, the uh, changed human history, was one of many dukes in Austria Hungary. About there were seventy uh, dukes that were part of the Austro Hungarian Empire, uh, although it wasn't Austro Hungary when he was born. That's what it became. Now, Ferdinand was known as, uh, and he, he, was, he was born in 1863 in Austria, uh, he became known as something of a, of a jerk, a bit of a, a hardliner on a number of issues, had a very low opinion of, uh, of Slavs and, and of the various ethnic groups in Eastern Europe, uh, including those over which the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire, many of which uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire presided, uh, but he was also something of a romantic. Uh, he gave up the right of his children to inherit because he insisted on marrying a uh, a lady in waiting named Sofia Chotek, and they fell in love. And so, within the Habsburg dynasty, you had to have uh, somebody else, uh, a member of a reigning. Uh, dynasty in Europe, um, and you had to be married to one rather, and uh, so he couldn't. He couldn't, in fact, get uh, the blessing from Emperor Franz Joseph, 
But uh, Franz Ferdinand went with it anyway. And Franz Joseph finally said, all right, look, as long as you give up the right of your children to become uh, the emperor, uh, you can go forward with this. So he became the uh, Archduke of Austria-Hungary, which was a uh, mixture of different uh, ethnicities and nationalities. It was uh, a multilingual polyglot empire. And like I said, he was known to be a guy who was uh, could be rough around the edges with some people, wasn't particularly uh, beloved by anybody, and was kind of a, a nasty individual. But very importantly, he also desperately wanted to avoid war with Russia. And at the time, you had these emerging powers in Europe, uh, obviously Germany already a power, Russia was increasing in power and Austria, Austro-Hungary or Austria-Hungary was uh, a, a somewhat, uh, by comparison, receding and increasingly decrepit empire, having a very difficult time asserting uh, power over its domains. So he he hand, he uh, inherits a literally a, a difficult situation as Archduke of uh, Austria-Hungary. He was even willing to uh, think outside the box, by the way, to handle some of these internal sectarian tensions. So Archduke Franz Ferdinand was willing, who again was assassinated today, is the anniversary of it, June 28th, uh, but he was willing to consider uh, breaking up uh, the Austro-Hungarian Empire into many different states. Uh, He even thought about calling it the United States of Greater Austria. Uh, And of course, he ran into conflict with nationalists, including, uh, most notably, because one of them killed him, Serbian nationalists. So the summer of 1914 uh, comes around, and Franz Ferdinand and his wife, uh, Sophie, remember, it's the lady that he decided to marry, even though it was causing some problems with the very old-school thinking within the Habsburg dynasty. Uh, So they go for a visit to the capital of Bosnia in Sarajevo, a city that most of you would probably know from its place in the headlines in the 90s uh, from the U.S. involvement in fighting in the Balkans. Uh, But in 1914, Franz Ferdinand and Sophie uh, decide to head down to take a little tour and uh, do some meetings and all the pomp and circumstance surrounding them uh, in Bosnia. And they knew that there were real security concerns. They knew that there was the very real possibility uh, of an assassination attempt. And despite all that, um, it, it said that uh, his wife, Sophie, initially was very dismissive of this and had even remarked that everybody had been so friendly and nice and everything initially was going so well. And they just refused to believe that they were entering this dangerous cauldron of, well, competing uh, nationalists and anarchists uh, and, uh, well, Terrorists, in this case, uh, and assassins. Welcome back, team. So we're talking about how today, uh, June 28th, is the uh, assassination, the commemoration or the anniversary of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand in Sarajevo, which uh, was in the incident, the spark that uh, led to the ignition of the First World War. So this is uh, oftentimes when we discuss 
politics and, and do analysis of all things that are happening in the world, people say, well, could this be an Archduke Franz Ferdinand moment and in reference to how one assassination or just one uh, pro- one political act can have profound impact that no one really understands the ramifications of until it's too late, and then all of a sudden you find yourself in a regional or even a global crisis, as in the case of the First World War, a crisis that consumed uh, over 10 million lives uh, and, and, and changed the direction, uh, the trajectory of, of world history, not just in, in Europe and America, should be noted in the Middle East, and, and really all over the world, because it was the end of uh, European empires. Uh, it also led to, well, many European empires, it led to uh, the Second World War, and uh, with that, of course, the, the really molding, the, the shaping of the modern era in which we live. Uh, but so it's June 28th, 1914. Uh, Franz Ferdinand and his wife, Sophie, are going for a, a nice little visit in Bosnia, uh, in Sarajevo, which is the capital, capital of Bosnia. And Bosnia at the time, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, had been annexed very recently by Austria-Hungary. And the nearby province of Serbia uh, wanted uh, these areas for itself. And there were Serbs who lived in, uh, lived in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, and they believed that they should be. And so they, they thought that uh, they could perhaps ignite a conflict or a, a separatist movement that would lead to uh, Bosnia becoming part of Serbia. By the way, you should note that this is a conflict and these are uh, ethnic and uh, sectarian separation lines that continued on for almost another hundred years and led to the, uh, or, or were very similar in the uh, Balkans breakup uh, after Yugoslavia, um, but I digress. So back to what's going on here. You've got, uh, on June 28th, 1914, you've got Franz Ferdinand, and his wife, Sophie, the Archduke, visiting for some military exercises. And he's in this town, and he, was not, he did not think well of, of Serbs. And there were at least some Serbs who certainly uh, returned the favor. Um, just as, as an aside, by the way, this is an area also that had been passed back and forth for centuries uh, between various groups, including the Ottoman Empire, which controlled uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina, uh, and you have Serbs, you have Muslims, you have Croats, you have all these different ethnicities uh, that are living in close proximity with different allegiances. So uh, the young Bosnians, which were a bunch of uh, self-styled revolutionaries, decided that they were going to take him out. It was known that Archduke Ferdinand was coming into town, and the young Bosnians were going to... Uh, were going to assassinate him, and Gavrilo Princip uh, was the one who ended up being successful, but he wasn't the only one who was trying to do this. Uh, there were a number of uh, co-conspirators with him. Um, they had been given uh, six handheld bombs, uh, a handful of uh, automatic pistols, and uh, some suicide capsules for themselves from a group called the Black Hand, which was really a, a paramilitary terrorist group that had direct ties to the Serbian army. So this was a, a sort of cutout for the Serbian army working through these 
paramilitary terrorists, and those guys gave the young Bosnians uh, the military hardware in, for necessary, in this case, for the assassination. Uh, they they practiced, by the way, it's kind of notable, they practiced firing in a, in a park in uh, in Belgrade. Yes, they practiced in a Belgrade park, which, you know, back in the day, you used to be able to do target practice in a park. Um, so it wasn't really clear then uh, what the full extent, and it's still people debate what the full extent of the Serbian uh, government and leadership's knowledge of this was. But so on the on that fateful day, again, June 28th, you had seven of the young Bosnians um, and when the motorcade passed by, they threw a, a bomb at it, and it bounced off the folded-up uh, roof that it had, and it actually went to the vehicle behind in the motorcade. So the Archduke, the Archduke's vehicle was hit by the bomb, but it didn't detonate. It detonated below the car behind it. It wounded a couple of police officers and a number of bystanders, but the Archduke was completely unharmed in this initial assassination attempt. Now, you'd think, perhaps, given that an attempted assassination had just occurred, that Archduke Ferdinand would decide to change up his itinerary, but no. Um, he felt like he could just go forward with things. I guess he, he saw that these, this initial assassination, uh, the initial assassin had been caught, and it seemed like it was such a bungling attempt that maybe he just wasn't worried about them trying it again. So he went forward with a planned trip to uh, City Hall, and then he insisted on going to visit the wounded police officers in the hospital. And as his uh, motorcade was going quickly, it actually made, yes, one of the great wrong turns of all history, it made a wrong turn, and it just so happened that Gavrilo Princip was in the alleyway where where they made the wrong turn. And uh, think about this. I mean, an assassin from earlier in the day who hadn't had the opportunity to take a shot or throw a bomb now has the Archduke later on, after the first failed attempt, drive right up to him uh, so close that Princip was able to just pull out his pistol at point-blank range and shoot the Archduke in the neck and shoot his wife, Sophie, uh, in the abdomen. Uh, It's pretty tragic stuff when you hear the last words of... uh, the Archduke, where Sophie, Sophie, don't die, stay alive for our children. Um, and uh, they both died within, within the hour. Uh, Princip was immediately grabbed by the nearby uh, crowd and was not put to death because he was too young, uh, but was given a, a, a 20-year-long prison sentence. Uh, so once... Uh, Archduke Ferdinand had been assassinated on the streets of uh, Sarajevo. Um, Then the series of events occurred whereby you had Austria-Hungary making demands from uh, making demands from demands from uh, from the Serbs. And they they knew the Serbs weren't going to be able to um, make good on them. And and then there's some discussion debate as to how serious it was considered that the that the, the prospect of war what happened? The Austrio, the Austrio, uh, Austria-Hungarians um, reached out to make sure the Germans had their back, and the Serbs reached out to the Russians to make sure that they had their back, and the French and the Brits had the Russians back. And once uh, Austria-Hungary uh, had the full support of the Germans, they decided that they would l- launch this punitive expedition. I mean, they had given the Serbs an ultimatum, and then. Uh, Austria-Hungary declared war on July 28th, 
1914, so it was just a month afterwards, a uh, month after the assassination. And then a week later, you had uh, Germany, France, uh, Russia, Great Britain, all drawn into this conflict. Um, as I said, uh, about 10 million soldiers died and many uh, millions more civilians in a war that went, uh, went all the way till, till the Treaty of Versailles uh, five, years, five years later. Um, and that is, uh, that is how this whole thing went down. Um, that is how we get, that is how we find ourselves now studying a, well, the First World War, which shaped the history of Europe, of course, and then the Second World War, which the first led really into the second. Um, but I just want to do a little history time with you for June 28th, Archduke Ferdinand Assassination Day. And uh, it is a reminder to us that uh, unintended consequences of political and national security events are uh, always something to be wary of. Um, we never know. You never know necessarily once drastic action is taken, what will be the response to it. Uh, team, as always, thank you for joining me here in the Freedom Hut. An honor, a pleasure, and a privilege. Uh, excited to be hanging out with you uh, tomorrow for a fantastic Thursday show. Please do uh, tell some friends about the show when you get a chance. Go to Buck Sexton with America Now on uh, iTunes. You can subscribe, and uh, please do, even if you're a live listener. Also, check out BuckSexton.com for news updates throughout the day. See you here in the Freedom Hut tomorrow, my friends. Shields high.